Hi, I'm Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast. The podcast where I sit down with everyday but by no means ordinary thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. This episode of the podcast was actually recorded back in 2021 and I unfortunately couldn't lay my hands on it despite doing a recording with Cheryl and really enjoying the conversation. I found it earlier this year and have sent it over to my wonderful podcast producers and asked them to publish it for me this week as I know that my audience will really love this conversation. So thank you to Cheryl and do as ever let us know what your thoughts are on our conversations. Enjoy. Welcome to Being Luminary. I am really delighted this week to be sitting down to have a conversation with Cheryl Giovanoni, who is uh, Chief Executive Officer at the Girls' Day School Trust. And how long have you been at um, GDST, Cheryl? It's coming up uh, to five years, Angie, and it was my very first job in education. And I have loved every single minute of it. It is my best job by miles. What were you doing before? I spent most of my career at WPP, the um, marketing and communications company, which has offices all around the world and came to education quite late in my career in some respects. But I can talk a little bit about that too in terms of what um, we're going to talk about today, because it has quite a lot of bearing on my story. Mm, Okay, fantastic. So let's get into it. Um, As I said to you and have been saying to guests who've come on to the podcast, I'm really interested to hear about the origins of the people that I'm talking to in order to kind of reflect on how those origin stories have had an impact on their work in education and indeed on their leadership of diversity, equity and or inclusion. So can we start off by talking a little bit about your origins and and how issues around diversity, equity and or inclusion may have manifested themselves in your origin story? I was born in South Africa. I'm one of four girls and uh, I grew up in a, a fairly middle class family, quite a traditional family in some respects. And my father was the professional with his own business who went out to work and my mother was the housewife who stayed at home. And at the time in South Africa, you know, women were basically considered second-class citizens in some respects. Uh, we were there for uh, the purpose of supporting uh, the men in our lives in a lot of ways. So, you know, my mother used to say things like, you must know your place as a woman. And, you know, education is wasted on girls because really what you will one day be doing is what I'm doing, which is being a housewife and having children of her own and looking after them. And she used to say this thing, which I still remember. She'd say, at five o'clock at night, you must make sure you've tidied yourself up and you've put on your lipstick to be ready for when your husband comes home from work. And I grew up with this sort of notion that women's role in life was pretty preordained in terms of the expectations. I went to a a state school in South Africa. I was the head girl of the school. I did very well academically, but there was still this sort of sense that 
what I was destined for was to fulfill my role as a wife and mother and that that was really all that was going to be required of me. So that's sort of the, the, the framework in which I grew up and I rebelled against very much by the time I got to a point where I thought, I think I want more for myself. And I did do all the things she wanted, though, incredibly. I went to finishing school. I learned to do all those things that girls are expected to do. I can arrange beautiful flowers. I can lay a dinner table. Um, I can type. I can do shorthand. And I got myself a job as a secretary and, you know, in waiting for, you know, that um, knight in shining armor to arrive. And then I thought, no, actually, I want more from this. And I had the real key, I think. I had some sponsors who I worked with. Both of them were women, actually. I think they recognized some potential and were really helpful in kind of inspiring me to think about what more there could be for me if I chose to put myself first. Uh, so I did a degree part-time. I did a BA in communication and psychology while I worked in my job and graduated eventually and, you know, started to work my way up in advertising. You know, the story I tell in our schools all the time is, you know, never be held back by the preconceptions that others might have about what your future should hold for you. You know, own your dreams and just ask yourself the question, what if? Because you can be anything you want to be if you set your mind to it. And breaking those stereotypes is such an important part of the work I now do in our schools to really help educate girls about actually their responsibility to make a difference in the world and to help girls and women see the world differently because of the potential that they have. So that's sort of the, the full circle of how I've got to where I've got to. And then there's another part of my history that I think is quite formative in that I grew up in South Africa in what was essentially a police state. And people are horrified when I say that I did not know Nelson Mandela existed until I was 16 years old. Uh, he went to prison the year I was born. And it was effectively, you know, there was no, nobody talked about him. Nobody had those conversations. And I remember being absolutely heartbroken at the age of five when we went on holiday with our nanny and she was not allowed on the beach with us. And I was devastated and couldn't understand and kept saying to my mother, why can Betty not come with us? What is the problem here? Um, and I was only five, but I remember it very graphically. And in some respects, I think that also has a way of shaping who you become, partly because there is this inbuilt guilt in South African people, not all South African people, but I think you live with the fact that you were part of a regime that was so incredibly um, vilified by the world and you cannot use the excuse that you didn't even know about that growing up with it. That's such an interesting psychology and it's one that I'm interested in. My ex-partner is German and, and we, we often used to talk about a psychology that he grew up with as a German person that is, again, sort of something that lurks beneath the surface in the rest of Western Europe that nobody quite talks about, but people kind of allude to in so many other ways and through so many other codes. And I often wonder 
as somebody whose identity has kind of is very obvious you know as a black woman I'm kind of I hold a very obvious identity I often wonder what it's like to hold some of those hidden identities I guess no one would necessarily know that you were South African that you were a white woman who is South African until they spoke to you perhaps and they picked up your accent but I often wonder about that psychology and does it play out in any way do you ever feel uncomfortable about saying I'm from South Africa or do you ever notice yourself kind of any awkwardness I guess about talking about growing up in South Africa? I think less so now because South Africa has in some respects I think shown itself to be open and prepared to have those difficult conversations and to face its demons and you know the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission I think helped South Africans come almost surface some of the issues that were much more unspeakable. But what brings it back, I think, is when I visit the country with my children who were born here and grew up here. And we, you know, recently, not that recently, three years ago, we were in a restaurant and they were deeply uncomfortable. And I said to them afterwards, you know, what was the problem? And they said, there's something about South Africa where it's still looks like it's the white people in the restaurants having the meals and it's the black people serving them. And I, it was one of my blind spots because it's not that I had forgotten that, but it's something you grow up with and it just feels like that is the way of the world. And it takes a comment like that to really shake you into remembering. Uh, And, you know, I have this one saying that I use quite a lot, which is treat other people like you would wish to be treated, especially the people who serve you, because there's something around that, that, you know, when people serve you, you need to be doubly appreciative because of the reality with which they, and it's something about checking your privilege, isn't it? And, and being good and kind to those people which, you know, we had a good conversation about that. But, you know, it is one of those things that is particularly difficult, I think, for South African people, because you did grow up as part of a very unequal world. But in some ways, I think what it does do is it it makes it something that you talk about and you are faced with, and we celebrate when we see progress being made. And it is becoming a much more equal society, which is, you know, you feel like you're at least now associated with a country that is making up for its past, which makes makes me feel really good about it. It makes me feel very proud. I'm very proud to be a South African. I might not have been before, but now I am. And so that's um, the example that you gave of Betty not being allowed to be on the, on the, on the beach with you is a really clear example of I guess Betty being the outsider or not being or or not having full access to society and coming out of South Africa have you experienced the the flip side of that experience being the outsider in a situation in which there was clearly a different insider group and if so could, can you talk a bit about about that experience well when I first came to work in the country which um, I transferred with my advertising agency from South Africa to London and when I first got there I worked with a group of people who over a period of time I got to know quite well and they told me after having worked with them for a year that when I first arrived they had decided they were not going to speak to me and they completely shut me out and they did that on the basis that I was South African and they did not want to feel that they were welcoming and making my life any easier because they didn't think I deserved it. 
And, you know, I, I suppose I worked through that and was very determined to win them over and to get to know. And I suppose they were good. In, they were generous enough to allow me in. But when they told me about that, I suppose it was a really shocking moment to realize that actually I was being judged, I thought, very unfairly because they didn't even know me and they were making that judgment. So there was a bit of that. And also there's something about, I think in this country, there is a there is there is a very ingrained class system that is quite impenetrable if you do not ascribe or, or you're not seen as part of that social class. And I think that that applies in almost all circumstances. And that's quite difficult. My husband's an academic and there have been times when I have gone to dinner with lots of his colleagues and you feel less accepted by those people because at that point I worked in advertising and they they were very scathing of me and looked down on me in a way. And I think women suffer this problem a lot throughout my career when I've made progress or, you know, been given promotions or got big jobs. And I've had a couple of CEO roles before this. I'd meet people, men usually, who would say to me, oh, uh, I never expected you to have a job like this. I didn't think you had this ambition, almost an underestimation of my talent or the fact that I deserve the job. So there's something quite interesting about people underestimating women often, which I think is, again, key to what drives my purpose at the GDST is, you know, you need to win respect, you need to respect yourself and you need to take yourself seriously and you need to build your own confidence and know that you matter and that you're good enough. I think there's a lot of times I have thought, am I really good enough? And, you know, I know lots of people also talk about imposter syndrome, which I don't always find that helpful. When you say that you don't find that term imposter syndrome necessarily helpful, what is it about it that you don't think is useful? I think it's used very glibly and a lot of people say it. You know, everybody says, oh, I suffer from imposter syndrome, rather than really unpacking it and having a conversation about what does that actually mean and why do you feel that way? And sometimes I think people use it almost as a way of getting you to say, no, 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 of course, you're absolutely brilliant. How can you possibly think that about yourself? As opposed to genuinely feeling that they worry about, you know, not being up to the job at hand. So I think it's just used in a very glib way that isn't always helpful. And those moments of feeling, I mean, I'm really interested in the way that institutions, for example, academia, position certain people as insiders and others as, as outsiders and kind of again those those codes as unspoken codes that go on in lots of those institutions and the insider outsider role isn't necessarily something that you can put your finger on at all times it's just there's something very subtle and nuanced about it can you talk a, a bit Cheryl about how those experiences and particularly the ones that you're describing that could be linked to also being a female and and men having ideas that that maybe women don't have the similar aspirations can you talk about how that links directly to the work that you do with girls and and young women and and how 
your relationship, I guess, with being an insider or outsider is translated into the work that you do with with them? That's quite complex, isn't it? I think um, the work we do in our schools is a lot of it is based upon there's very few opportunities in a girl's life where things are designed around her and her needs and help her develop her confidence and thrive and experiment and learn about herself and fail if she needs to. There's, there aren't many places where there is that, uh, I don't want to use the word safety net because it's not that, but it's a it's a space in which a girl can really learn and experiment and develop her skills without being quite so judged as she might be in a different setting. So the expertise we have, I think, in the GDST is absolutely geared to giving girls that opportunity. And we have this line, helping girls learn without limits. And that is, you know, genuinely what I think is is important about the work we do, recognizing her ambitions, her talents, her quirks, her um, her idiosyncrasies, her weaknesses, and helping her along with others to really understand that and be given the space to grow and develop in an environment where she isn't judged for those things. I think that's what is so important. And you know, the the other the insider outsider thing is we we spend a lot of time talking about being this family of schools and these are GDST girls and you're a GDST girl for life. And I think the important thing is we genuinely mean that. How can we help you? How can we be the network around you? And how can the girls around you be your network that will help you throughout life do your very best? So you know, I think um, I think that's a really important part of the work we do, and it's it's also doing it from the perspective of the students what they need. It's not what we're doing to them so much, but it's what we're facilitating and helping them work through themselves. And how do we make sure student voice features heavily in everything we do? You know, curriculum the way our schools are run, the way the girls have leadership positions, the the opportunities, the kinds of things they can do and how they get challenged are all really important ways of of helping address that. And do your girls lean into that network when they leave school? Do they continue to lean into it? They lean into it and we're building ways for them to really lean into it. So we've talked about, you know, how do we create this sort of club that you have membership of? What does that look like? We've got, you know, more than 70,000 women in our alumni network. The girls in our sixth form have an opportunity to connect with those alumni. They can ask questions about careers. They can look for um, internships, advice more generally. And we've more recently formed a black mentoring scheme, which is connecting our black alumna with black girls in our schools, because that is, again, something that they really benefit from. And, you know, I know it's a real cliche. If you can see it, you can be it. But those things really matter. And one of the things we've perhaps, and this is part of the work we're doing in diversity and inclusion, is whilst we have quite a diverse student population in GDST schools, We aren't quite so diverse in terms of the staff we have in our schools. 
So in terms of finding ways to connect girls with uh, women who may be able to help them, and this isn't just about black girls, it's about you know, diversity in its broadest sense. So we, we're working quite hard to do that. That's not to say we shouldn't be working on our recruitment policies, which is another strand of our undivided program, which I can talk about if you'd like. But, you know, we've got a way to go, certainly, in making sure that our staff don't feel as singular so that we can really develop the diversity conversation in the round as much as we possibly can. This relationship between insider and outsider fascinates me. And I really hear when you're talking about the girls having an opportunity to see themselves and be themselves in a school that just asks them to bring themselves and their identity. I really feel the freedom in that. I think I have two questions for them. And I think the first is, would you want for a girl's education for every girl? Because clearly, you know, your schools are fee paying schools and, and not every girl can can presumably come to the schools but do you I mean is that fundamental to your work in education that girls education has a particular quality that's important one of our key charitable aims is to reach as many girls as possible and I think your your observation around fee paying girls is a very important one Uh, not all of our schools are fee paying two of them aren't only two out of 25 I you know I take that we've got a huge bursary program. Uh, about 20% of the girls in our secondary schools are on some form of bursary, but we also have a new program which we're launching for our 150th anniversary, which is 150 additional bursaries for girls who uh, would benefit from an education in our schools. And the other thing is we have lots of partnership programs with uh, state schools, girls' schools generally, but not only girls' schools, because this isn't about you know, separating girls from the world and wrapping them in cotton wool because they can't deal with the world. It's about them being open and influential and going on to be change makers and take with them some of this so that they can actually make this a more equitable world. I think gender justice has always been very much at the heart of the GDST, but actually racial justice, social justice, uh, those are the kinds of things that are helping us broaden this conversation. And, you know, disability features in there. Those are the things that are giving us a platform to have a really constructive and quite engaging conversation with the pupils in our schools. And that's the sort of work that because we're in education, it's about how do we move things on? How do we educate about the issues that really matter and put the girls at the heart of that? So the insider-outsider question is, you know, I would like to think any girl could benefit. We've got international partnerships we're developing. Uh, There's lots of interest in how do we do that with the developing world as well as, you know, other countries where there are schools we partner with. But, you know, the agenda is, is female largely at our schools. And I meet people who say to me, when are you going to start the Boys Day School Trust? And my view is, well, it's girls that need support right now they've had quite a few schools boys have had a lot of help in the past (laughs) and continue to get a lot of help they do the fact that there are still only five ceos in this country that are female of FTSE 100 companies means we've got a long way to go and when we've addressed all the issues around equality yeah then our job will be done 
But right now, even closing the gender pay gap, they say, at the current rate, will take 168 years. So our job is not done by any means. So the other thing I say often is I think strategy is the, the art of sacrifice. You've got to decide what you stand for. And you've got to really get behind that rather than trying to be all things to all people. And the other thing about insiders and outsiders, I would like to think that the girls who benefit and have the privilege of an education in our schools will actually go on to be broader influencers and leaders that actually start to address some of these issues at scale, because that's what we need them to do. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. That was the other the other piece of my question was then what do, what are they inspired to do? So that's really encouraging. And and my question about are you committed to girls' education actually comes from growing up really, really. I mean, I used to read Mallory Towers and, you know, wanted to basically wanted to go to Mallory Towers. So so for me, a girls' education is absolutely perfection. I'm just interested in in, in that commitment um, from your perspective. So you've touched on a few things that you're working on at the moment, and you've talked around a bit of the work you're doing um, towards social justice, racial justice, and gender justice. Can you unpack a bit more some of that work and and, and tell us perhaps what what you feel is going well for GDST at the moment in this field? It's been one of those things that has developed a real momentum over the past year. I wrote a blog, as did many people, focusing on George Floyd's death a year ago, and reflecting on what progress I think we've made. I do an annual school review at the moment with each school. And part of that annual school review is for them to report back on the progress they have made on our undivided agenda, which is our, we call it the undivided program. It is our commitment to diversity, inclusion and and real change. And they have to report on progress uh, in terms of student voice. So we've done student surveys across our schools all throughout the last year. They have to talk about what they're doing and the goals they're setting themselves in terms of recruitment, curriculum review. They have to share examples of programs they have put in place, either driven by the girls in the schools or facilitated by uh, the teachers in the classroom. And we have this uh, undivided charter, which we are in the process of agreeing what the the targets are that we're going to measure progress against over the next two years. So I feel like we've had a year of really listening well, engaging in a debate, and that's with pupils past and present. We've had our alumna being very vocal and talking a lot about things they might have lived through when they were in school, some not very positive, some quite worrying, you know, things that haven't made us particularly proud, but this is an opportunity to address some of them. And the goal is to keep that conversation live. We have um, a steering committee. We have uh, a panel of alumna who are involved. We also have parents who've engaged with us. So it just feels like this whole community is, is very much alive and well, And it's not a moment in time that has now passed and we've all gone back to what we did before because it's a year on. And frankly, you know, uh, what's what's the latest thing that we're going to talk about and do something about? So it feels it feels like fundamental change is the foot. And that feels very I think that feels very encouraging. And it's just become a permanent fixture on our agenda in terms of student councils and even our board of trustees 
you know, our chair is our appointed uh, diversity and inclusion champion. And we are also doing quite a lot of work with our governing bodies to make sure they are representative and diverse and certainly representative of their local schools and the communities in their schools. So it just feels like really exciting work that people are energised by. You look energised by it, I have to say, as you're talking about it. I am. I am energised by it. I get really excited because I feel like we're making a difference in the world. And if we can do that, if that's our legacy and, and we can point to things where we have made a difference, those things really matter. And it's exciting. So... On that note, because I agree, I think it's really exciting. And I think that I've I've just loved this year seeing so many schools peel back a lid on something and perhaps be a bit nervous about what they were going to discover and then just discover that there are all of these people, staff community, student community, parent community, who are ready to roll their sleeves up and help move things forward. And actually, after the initial bit of we are disappointed that this hasn't been handled well we think you could have done better with this all of those conversations there's just a great will to change the school system and I hadn't sort of pre-planned this question but hearing you talk has made me think about the network of school leaders but particularly independent school leaders and some school leaders overseas as well who I've been working with over the course of this year who have had the beginnings of some quite difficult conversations with former students with their alumna and I just wonder if you've got any words of advice or inspiration or anything that you could talk to around your experience of diving into those conversations, just to hearten some of our listeners maybe who are on the brink of doing that. Well, I think one of the things you have to be is you have to be open to listening and really listening and trying to understand what it is that not that you can not that you can fix but that you can take on board and start to apply in a way that means you're making progress and looking for small wins i suppose and and using those as an opportunity to to just create some momentum you have to start somewhere you have to engage with this and i think you have to probably think about a framework in which you're going to try to move forward because without that it just becomes a conversation and we just talk about it I think you've got to be open to challenge and there has to be quite skillful management of the process you can't just let it run its own course but at the same time uh, I think it's really important that you have to empower the pupils in your school to feel that they have a part to play in what you are trying to shape. I don't think you can shape it for them. You can't do it to them. You can only do it with them and provide the um, scaffolding almost for that to start to happen. And also, I think it's important to think about it as something you're trying to embed in the culture. It's not a new initiative that you are layering on top. It's the culture you are trying to change and you're trying to embed a different way of thinking about things that really matters. Mm. Mm, thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. So there's a bit about what sounds like it's going really well and has gone well over the course of this year. And it's so great to catch up with you at this point, because I think it was about a year ago that we first started talking about the beginning of that journey. And this and this sounds like huge progress. Amidst that progress, I'm sure there are areas that you still think we need to work on. 
maybe blind spots, maybe things that you, you just are just not top of the agenda right now. What might they be? I think the main thing is probably recruitment and trying to encourage. I think it's about trying to help people be open-minded about the fact that we don't have to hire people who look like us, who sound like us, and who come from the same educational background, the richness that would come from us opening our minds and hearts to a more diverse community. It's easy to say. It's not quite so easy to do. And I think there is also a, and I think it's a really good thing, there is a a philosophical conversation to be had about where do you make the most difference as an educator? Is it teaching in the state sector or is it teaching in an independent school like one of ours? And I think that there is a job on both sides of the equation, but at the same time, I would love, I would, I would really love to think that people felt that this was the kind of organization that was beyond the conversation about whether it's state or independent, that this is about helping girls make progress and that is what's, you know, uh, a useful thing to do. A good example, we have a staff member who I met at a conference that I went to very early on in my job at the GDST uh, and it was at Wellington College and she sat in the audience and came up to talk to me afterwards. Um, She's a black teacher and she said, I really liked what you said and I love the sound of your organisation, but you would never hire somebody like me. And I said to her, what do you mean by that? And she said, oh, you know, I just would never fit. I'd never feel comfortable and you would never feel comfortable with me. And I said to her, you and I are going to take on a challenge together and you are going to apply for a couple of jobs at the GDST and I want you to, I want to prove you wrong. So let's try and see if we can do that. And I am just so chuffed to tell you that she has been a deputy head in one of our schools for the past few years, and she's just got a headship of one of our schools. And she and I still talk about this, and we talk about why she felt that way, and actually once she'd come in, how different it was, and that she is now helping affect change from the inside. So I just wish there were a few other people, and there are some, but I would want us to feel that open and that accessible and that exciting as a way of making a difference. And I think it's, I mean, those conversations are so, you can't obviously as the CEO have those conversations with every single person at every single conference that you go to, but thinking through, I love talking to organisations about how they're thinking through what they look like to people who hold diverse um, identities or protected characteristics and and just having that mirror shone on the organisation that, you know, this is what you look like or in this context you look like this or people are reading into what you say here in this way. But once that starts, I think that opens up really exciting opportunities for everybody. And I completely agree with you. As a black teacher and as a black head teacher, I was always really interested in thinking, I, I actually think jobs come to you and I think, oh, what's in front of me now? Ah, and what can I do with this? Like, what, what wants to work itself through me? What opportunity is this giving me? And so sometimes that's looked like being a head teacher in a school that was predominantly white British children and just feeling like, what a gift. These children can say that they've had a black head teacher in a 
county that had no other black head teachers and and what are the opportunities for those children and, and I think you're absolutely right it's not always about being the person that represents the children that we're teaching in terms of the way that we look or the identity that we might hold it's taking the opportunity to be inspiring with the identity that we hold for any child who is in front of us so I'm um, so it's so exciting to hear you talking about that recruitment's a big thing and that's a big thing for, for lots of schools if you had felt like you were moving forward with your strategy and that recruitment was starting, you were starting to see changes in terms of the recruitment of staff to the organisation, would you begin to feel that practice was becoming luminary? Would you begin to feel that you were able to share your work with other organisations and shine a light on how to work with diversity, equity, inclusion matters? Or would there be any other things that you would still like to do in order to feel like you were really going places? I think you've got to be able to show proof of progress and proof of concept, as it were, in all sorts of areas. And just you saying to me now, I was thinking of our website and I thought, oh, my word, I need to go and audit all our websites, all the websites across the GDST. And that should be a filter through which we we see and assess and have people tell us if if we're doing a good enough job. So there are just always so many things to address, aren't there? And there are always great ideas to share and to learn from and to understand. But I would feel like we were, you know, we're on a journey. There's still quite a lot of work to do, but I'd feel like we were becoming, I don't know that we'll ever be luminary. I'd like to think our ambition was luminary and that you could hold us to account for our ambition and the fact that we are, making progress and that would be the thing that I would like to be judged on you know where are we now and where might we be in three or five years time and looking back I'd like to think we'd made significant progress that we could point to and celebrate and share with others as really good practice and inspiring ways of addressing some of the challenges we all face. Yeah that's that's so good to hear and I I do just want to offer a bit of feedback around this I use this term luminary and I think it makes people feel as it should you know we're going to shine a light on something we are going to be something a light towards which people will hopefully flock or at least find some safety or inspiration but I think that that suggests that the work is always in the positive realm and some of the work that you're talking about is actually the difficult work of unpacking things that have happened previously, things that are not working, and really going to places that you may not always want to as an organisation. And for me, at this point in time, that feels like luminary practice. And so <laughs> I would say to you, but also to anyone else who's unpeeling the lid on things, who's beginning to have those conversations, maybe that's what luminary looks like right now, is really going there and, and seeing what people have to say and being prepared to to sit with whatever comes back. Do you, Cheryl, have anything that you would like to add or any encouragement that you would like to offer anyone who's listening to this who wants to drive change in the system? I do think this gives real energy and it gives added purpose and added urgency to the job we are doing. And I think that that's the way you should approach it, that this is exciting energizing stuff and while it's difficult we shouldn't be cowed by that because 
it's through the difficulty that we will make real progress and start to chip away at some very embedded and deep issues that just need to have a light shone on them. And that's what that's what we should we should approach it in a very positive way because otherwise we will be overwhelmed and disheartened too quickly. And we shouldn't be. We have to believe that we are all building a better world every day and through very small interventions. That at the end of the day for me is what gets me up every morning and keeps me going. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's been so nice to talk to you. Thank you for joining us and thank you for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Angie. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.